Well, last week we looked at Saul's sinful sacrifice, and we began by watching Jonathan take some of uh, some soldiers and attack a Philistine garrison at Geba. And this resulted in the Philistines mustering their full strength to come out against Israel at Gilgal. And we noted that it was actually Saul who was supposed to provoke this national conflict between Israel and Philistia right after his anointing. But because of his failure, his son had to do it many years later. And then we spent some time developing the idea that the reason that God told Saul to provoke this war with the Philistines in the first place was because God had been using the Philistines as sort of a a tool of judgment that was preventing them from completing the conquest of the land and specifically from capturing Mount Zion or Mount Jerusalem. And so at his anointing, God gave Saul the opportunity to eliminate the Philistines, capture Mount Zion, and to have his throne, quote, established forever as the king who would bestow the glory of God upon the people. And yet despite his initial failure back in chapter 10 to carry out that charge, chapter 13 showed us that God gave Saul one last chance, one last opportunity to fulfill the purpose for which he was anointed by when God brought the Philistines out as a nation against them last time at Gilgal. This was Saul's opportunity. The only thing required of him was that he show himself faithful to the basic principle of a man who would uh, build and mediate God's redemptive kingdom on the earth. And that was this, that he submit himself wholly to the word of God by taking no action with respect to the kingdom unless God himself authorized it. And so God told him, once the Philistines come out for battle against you, you go down to Gilgal and you wait seven days and I'm going to send my prophet and he's going to anoint your kingdom through a sacrifice and then he will give you directions through divine revelation on how you are going to defeat the kingdom's enemies. And yet the seventh day came, and as it began to pass, Saul realized that the obedience required to be God's holy king would be costly, that he would have to endure a threat to his life as a massive army was closing in on him, and that he would have to obey in spite of the faithlessness of those who were around him, and that he would have to live by faith, trusting in God to fulfill his word, to save him on that seventh day when he could not see any visible or tangible signs of that salvation around him. But because he was not a man after God's own heart, he offered the sacrifice himself and proceeded to battle with no revelation from God. And as a result, his dynasty was destroyed before it ever even got going. That's where we left off last time. We received our formal confirmation that the cowardice we saw within Saul back in chapter 10 was actually and truly the result of a stony heart that did not know the Lord and not merely a moment of weakness from a child of God. And so we are at a very low point in the development of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. It seems like apostasy reigns supreme and that the kingdom is continuously being sabotaged by faithless men. But lest we despair too much and wonder if, if uh, there really is any hope that the God of heaven is going to actually accomplish His purposes and really does have a faithful people for Himself... Chapter 14 is going to show us one of the great examples in the Old Testament of a man who lives by saving faith. And because from the shadows of Saul's faithlessness, there emerges his son, Jonathan, a man whom the text will show us embodies the faith that was so lacking in his father, Saul. And so the title of this sermon is A Display of Saving Faith. 
Now, this really is one sermon, but I'm going to break it up into two. We're going to do the first half of it today. Today's exposition is going to include the following points. We will see, first, the obstacles to saving faith. Second, the expression of saving faith. And then third, we will look at part one of the justification of saving faith. So then, let's look first at the obstacles to saving faith. This will begin in uh, chapter 13 and the second half of verse 15. Now, we're going to see Jonathan's great statement of his faith in in chapter 14, verse 6. But before we get there, the text wants to make sure that we are fully aware of all of the difficulties that confronted Saul, Jonathan, and the Israelites in this situation. In a fallen world, if saving faith is actually going to show itself, it's going to have to do so in the face of many obstacles to its actual expression. And in this text, there are four obstacles that present a challenge to the exercise of saving faith. The first of them is this, diminished strength. Recall from last week that as part of establishing his reign, Saul began to create a standing army within Israel. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 13 told us that Saul took 3,000 men and he divided them into garrisons and stationed them in various places. So 3,000 men is what he has at this particular moment. And then recall that once Jonathan attacked the first garrison of Philistines, they responded by sending out their full strength to battle. And verse 5 says, said the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. So that was the situation that Saul was facing when he went down and arrived at Gilgal. And you recall that once the Israelites saw this massive army, the menacing force that was confronting them, they began to lose heart and to flee in every direction. And so now, after, after having offered the sacrifice, suffering Samuel's rebuke, and returning to his army in Gibeah, Saul finds himself in an undesirable situation. The Philistines have not gone home. He still has to do something about them, but now it seems that God has abandoned him to his fate. And yet, rather than crying out in prayer to God, Saul turns to what he knows best. And that is to looking for carnal means to try to deliver himself. And so naturally he wants to know, well, how many men have I still got? So therefore we read in verse 15b, Saul numbered the people who were with him, about 600 men. 600. That's all he's got left. He started out with 3,000, but apparently 2,400 of them have fled for safety. Now what a stark contrast this is from, from chapter 11 with Nahash the Ammonite. There, you remember, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul contrary to his natural disposition. And the result was that all of Israel came out and united themselves under his leadership as the fear of God fell upon them. And they together assaulted the enemy and drove him back. They were all united under Saul. But now that Saul has rebelled against God and the Spirit and the prophet have abandoned him, all of a sudden there's no more unity and confidence in Saul from the people. They don't unite under him. They all begin scattering. And he's left with an insufficient force from a human perspective to engage in this battle. The text then contrasts Saul's depleted and cornered army with the strength and aggressiveness of the Philistines. Verse 17 says, The raiders came out of the camp in three companies. One turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual, another toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim. You see, they're, they're spreading out. The Philistines have come out in multiple companies and they're trying to outflank and outmaneuver the Israelites. And so the Israelites are outnumbered and outmaneuvered by the enemy. Nothing is going right from a military perspective at this point. 
Now, so far, the focus has been almost exclusively upon Saul, but you know that the focus is about to shift to Jonathan. And in verse 16, the text hints that we are meant to understand this, uh, this numerical obstacle as having direct relevance to Jonathan. Because the text says, Saul and Jonathan his son stayed in Gibeah of Benjamin while the Philistines camped in Michmash. So in other words, the text sets the stage for what Jonathan is about to do by drawing attention to the fact that he was there on that hill watching as the Philistines began to spread out over the surrounding valleys and hills. And as he turns and realizes, I've only got 600 men to fight this battle with. That is the first obstacle that the text lays out for us to the exercise of saving faith, diminished numerical strength, 600 versus almost 40,000. The second obstacle is this, diminished weaponry. Now, as if it weren't bad enough that the entire army is outnumbered, the situation gets even worse because in verse 19, the text tells us that low numbers are not the only military obstacle standing in the way of victory, but that the few soldiers that Israel does have, the 600, don't even have sufficient weaponry. Look at verse 19. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plow, his mattocks, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third for the sharpening of the axes and the setting of the goads. Now, I literally could not get any worse than this. The Philistines have been so invasive within Israel up to this point that they have successfully stamped out any blacksmiths in the whole country. There was no one in Israel who could make a weapon from steel. And the Philistines, of course, did this on purpose to neuter Israel's military. So no one in Israel was allowed to have a weapon unless the Philistines said so. And it was so bad that even farmers who are not trained as soldiers had to go to a Philistine blacksmith in order to get just their basic farm equipment sharpened for use in the field. Now this is, uh, this reminded me of Nazi Gestapo level stuff. And so what we now realize is that even though Saul technically does have an army, the army doesn't even have the basic weapons it needs to fight. It has no swords, no heavy-duty battle axes, no spears, and maybe even no bow and arrows either. Instead, the, the soldiers are reduced to having to use sickles and light axes, farm equipment. And even then, if they want those things sharpened, they have to go to the Philistines. Now imagine how humiliating this would be. You know that you're about to fight the Philistines at some point, but you have to go to the very people whom you're about to fight. And as you go to them, you see them all dressed in their bronze armor and surrounded by their chariots and carrying well-crafted swords. You have to approach them and ask if they would pretty please sharpen your little sickle. And to top it all off, the text tells us that there were only two swords in the Israelite army. Quote, so on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people of Saul or with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. So you have 600 farmers armed with equipment that is best suited for cutting grain and two guys with swords. And one of the guys with the swords has already shown himself to be a coward. And they're going to allegedly fight a fully furnished army, 55 times their size. The absurd impossibility of it all is actually meant to be almost over the top. So then, that is the second obstacle that confronts the exercise of saving faith on the day of battle. Not only do they have diminished numbers, they don't even have weapons. And so things are about as bleak as they could be, even for the most ardently 
faithful Israelite. But it gets even worse, for we come to a third obstacle, diminished favor. Now we come into chapter 14. We're going we're to skip verse 1 of chapter 14 because it's repeated in verse 6, and we're going to deal with it there. I want to draw your attention to what the Word of God says in verse 2 of chapter 14. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migram. Now, our text says that Saul is in a pomegranate cave. Now, I looked at about 15 other translations, both old and new, and every single one of them said that Saul was under a pomegranate tree, not in a pomegranate cave. Now, briefly, the reason for this is that in the Hebrew, it just says Saul was under the pomegranate. There is no Hebrew word cave or tree in the text. Uh, Our Bible sort of add that as an interpretation to help us. Now, the Hebrew word for pomegranate is rimon, rimon. Now, every other translation, besides the one that, that I'm using here, assumes that we're talking about a pomegranate tree, which makes sense. But the ESV translators thought that this uh, Ramon might be a reference to the rock of Ramon, which the Benjaminites fled to during the days of the Civil War. And since those things they fled to were rocky caves that were called pomegranate, the translators thought that that might be what's being referred to here. Now, I actually think that tree is probably the best translation, primarily because the idea of a ruler stationed under a tree to issue edicts for good or evil is a biblical theme. Adam was called to exercise kingly dominion in rendering a judicial verdict under the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Deborah, the judge, exercised her rule under the palm tree as men would come and seek counsel for her. And in a couple chapters, we're actually going to see Saul uh, exercising satanic rule under the tamarisk tree of Gibeah. Uh, and that's where he issues that edict that the priests of Nob should be slaughtered. So Saul has set up, I'm going to go with tree because I think that's right. Saul has set up his royal throne or council beneath a tree. But it is the throne site of a kingly line that has just been cut off and made impotent. So you can picture Saul seated under this tree with his, uh, his council of, of followers around him. And it's almost like a, a man who's wearing a paper crown and holding a stick in his hand for a scepter. He has the form of a king but no substance to it because God has rejected his line. And you can see that the text wants to drive home the idea of God's rejection to us by looking at verse 3. Verse 3 says, The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. Now, why would the text feel the need to not only mention that this priest named Ahijah is here, but to actually go out of its way to rehearse his entire genealogy to us. Because the text wants us to see that Ahijah is not just any old priest. This priest belongs to the family of Eli. You remember Eli from earlier in the book? He refused to discipline his sons who were profaning the tabernacle by stealing from the offerings of God. And Samuel's first task, as a prophet, was to tell Eli that his house was going to be cut off forever. Ahijah's uncle was Ichabod. You remember what that name means? His name means that the glory has departed from Israel. And Ahijah's great-grandfather is Eli, the rejected priest of God. So then if you're a member of Israelite's army here, it's bad enough that God just rejected your king in the previous chapter... But lest you try to take any comfort in the fact that, well, you still have Yahweh's priesthood who might be able to procure God's favor, you are quickly dissuaded of that comfort by remembering that he too is rejected of God. In other words, there is no reason on the surface for anyone in Israel to believe that God is with this army. How could anyone have faith that God would work salvation when these are the human leaders that they are dependent 
for guidance and action upon. Now, they know that God has saved them from the Philistines before when they were surrounded and outnumbered. That happened back in chapter 7 at Mizpah. But in that context, God saved them through Samuel, a leader who did have God's favor. But now you can't even take comfort in that. Samuel is gone, and you are stuck with two leaders whom God has despised and cast away. That is the third obstacle to saving faith in this situation. The nature of those who are leading this army into battle screams diminished favor from God. So then we come to the fourth and final obstacle to saving faith, daunting geography. And we briefly see it in verses 4 and 5. Quote, Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Now a crag, children, if you don't know that word, is a steep, rocky cliff. So the picture is that there's a small valley and then on either side of it, there's these rocky hills that rise up very steeply and sharply. Uh, sharply. A rocky crag is not a casually sloping uphill path that you can walk on that's finely paved and graveled. It is a steep ascent that really, in most cases, I actually looked up a lot of pictures of these as I was preparing the sermon. To my mind, there's really no way you could get up a lot of these without some kind of rock climbing skills, like formal defying gravity type stuff. You, you don't walk casually up these. We have Rocky Face Park, as you know, about a mile down the road. I want you to, uh, to, to imagine trying to climb up one of that, the, the Rocky Face down there with no ropes. Just the nature of this geological formation would make it a very strenuous undertaking to climb to the top. But that's not all, because even if you do decide to climb and you're physically capable of doing it, what is waiting for you at the top of this thing? The Philistines. And as any general of ancient warfare will tell you, he who has the high ground has the advantage. Think about why, why the Jebusites who controlled Jerusalem at this time in 2 Samuel are, are going to so confidently boast that David's never going to come up here and capture Mount Zion because they had the high ground. David would have to engage in an uphill assault. He would be fighting gravity because they were so high up. And the Jebusites would be able to see every move they made coming from far away. That's the nature of the advantage when you are high up. So if Jonathan decides to do this, not only will he have to exert the physical energy necessary to slowly climb this rock face, he knows his opponents are going to be able to see him coming from a, a long ways away and will have the military advantage to fight him if they so choose. Now, you want to talk about a barrier to action. This is it. Now, bring all this together. Put yourself in Jonathan's shoes. You are confronted with impossible odds numerically. An army so depleted of weaponry that you are holding one of two swords within it. Human leaders who have been rejected by God through prophetic revelation. And on top of all that, if you want to take any action on your own, you have to slowly climb on your hands and knees up a rocky slope to confront an enemy who can see you coming from far off. What the text wants us to see, brothers and sisters, is that there are literally zero reasons for Jonathan or for anyone else to hope that Israel can succeed against the Philistines in this context. The Word of God has taken us through just about every natural means that man might have recourse to in order to engage in a battle like this and shown us that no hope can be found in any of them. And it is in recognizing that fact that Jonathan's next words and deeds become extraordinary. So we come to the second main point, the expression of saving faith. 
It is with the knowledge of every obstacle that we just mentioned that Jonathan looks at his armor bearer in verse 6 and says this, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can stop the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, this statement from Jonathan expresses nothing other than wholehearted trust in the God of heaven. In other words, what we just read is an expression of saving faith. Now, when I say this is an expression of saving faith, I am not saying that we just read about Jonathan's conversion. If someone hears the gospel for the first time and responds verbally with uh, repentance and a pleading for God to save them, we might say that person has just expressed saving faith. And what we mean by that is they are giving that initial cry that arises from a heart that has been made new. So to say that they have expressed saving faith in that context is to make a statement about their conversion. But that's not what we're talking about here. Rather, what we're hearing from Jonathan is more analogous to a man who's been walking with Christ for 50 years and upon the death of his wife bows to God in prayer and confesses that it is well with his soul because the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That kind of expression does not arise because a man or woman is being converted. No, it's an expression that is rooted in a saving faith that has been lived in for many years. Regenerate men and women regularly bring forth expressions of saving faith. That is, expressions or statements about the realities of life that are fashioned from a heart that is living in communion with God. And that's what we have here with Jonathan. Now, I want you to notice three things about Jonathan's expression of saving faith. First, Jonathan trusts God to act justly, regardless of which outcome he decrees. He says this, Come, let us go to the garrison of the uncircumcised, for it may be that the Lord will work for us. Now, the way that's translated almost makes it sound like Jonathan's sort of uh, throwing his hands in the air and saying, well, who knows? God might do something, but maybe he won't. As if the emphasis of the statement is on the uncertainty of the thing. But the emphasis in his words is not upon the who knows, but it's rather upon Jonathan's recognition that he does not ultimately control God. This is a statement of confidence in God. You would not do what he's proposing to do without confidence in the Lord. But the confidence is not, I know infallibly that God will slaughter the Philistines and that he's going to accomplish it through this series of steps that I am able to predict. Rather, it's a statement that Jonathan knows he must act in faithfulness and that whatever the outcome God chooses and decrees is right and is just. So there is an element of uncertainty in it in that he says God may work for them, but it is a confidence in the uncertainty. And that's what saving faith does. It's faith. So by definition, it recognizes that it is dependent upon another and their mercies. It would not be faith without that. But in that inability to control the object of faith or know exactly how every detail is going to be worked out, it still has an absolute confidence that the outcome that the one in control decrees is good and right. Now, in this story, you already know that God does act and save Jonathan. But Jonathan's statement comes from a heart that would still love God even if God did not save him and allowed him to die. And remember, that's what's ultimately going to happen to Jonathan. Jonathan is going to die on Mount Gilboa at the hands of these very same Philistines that he's climbing up to meet right now. In that context, God did not save him. But God did not fail 
to save him. That's a crucial distinction. And it makes all the difference in the world between discerning a true faith from a false faith. Jonathan has absolute confidence in God even if God allows him to die. He says, I'm confident in him. I'm confident that he loves to save, and yet even if he slay me, he has done right. That's the first thing to notice about this faith. It rests content, knowing that it can't control or predict God, and yet it's the most secure foundation upon which to act. Second, he trusts God in any and all circumstances and through any and all means. He says, nothing can stop God from saving by many or by few. So here we go from a general expression of confidence to a more specific one. It's not just that God can save. For Jonathan, God is able to save in any and all circumstances that he engages himself in. In Jonathan's mind, mankind in all of his ingenuity and all of his craftiness of mind cannot even conceive of a hypothetical set of circumstances in the created world that would confront God with an obstacle that was too vast to overcome to accomplish salvation. Now that is not the case with man. There are lots of things that prevent man from saving others when they desire to. Think of the disciples of Christ. We know that Jesus had to come to die and accomplish redemption. But you remember that in the disciples' minds, they refused to believe initially that Jesus dying was a good and necessary thing. Peter even has to be rebuked as satanic because he is so forcefully opposed to it. Prior to the resurrection, they were adamantly against Christ dying. And so therefore, if they could have saved him, they would have. Peter tried in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cut off that servant boy's ear. You remember that story. And yet when the time came, when Jesus was being beaten, spit upon, and led out to the cross, those disciples who wanted nothing more than to rescue him from this fate found a set of circumstances that were too powerful for them to save Christ. Those who were the most adamant that they would die if need be encountered a few men with swords and says, that right there, that's enough to stop us from saving. King Darius, you remember the story, he wanted to save Daniel from the lion's den. It was Darius who didn't want to throw him in. This is the most powerful man in the world at the time, and he doesn't want Daniel to meet this fate. But what stopped him from being able to save Daniel? His own words. I made a foolish decree that anyone who prayed to a God other than me would be unjustly executed. So I guess there's nothing I can do to step in and save Daniel from these murderous officials in my court. This was not some physical obstacle that was too great to overcome. It was simply the king's own words that prevented him from saving. Why? Because he's a man. And it doesn't matter what titles he has. He's not God. And so there are things that can stop him from saving. But not Yahweh of hosts. Jonathan says nothing can stop him from saving. But notice something important in what Jonathan says here as well. We read, when we read the phrase, by many or by few... Obviously, we tend to focus in on the by few part. Why? Because when God saves by few, it, it normally involves some kind of miraculous intervention in time and display of his power that goes against ordinary means. And so, of course, we think of God destroying Pharaoh and the Egyptians when Israel was few in number, or God striking 144,000 Assyrian soldiers through a single angel, or his saving of the Hebrew boys from the furnace when it seemed like there would be no one to rescue him. Those are all by few situations, and they are wonderful. But notice that Jonathan doesn't just confess God saves by few, as if God has to do it this way. Jonathan says nothing can stop God from saving by many or by few. In other words, there are plenty of examples where salvation and blessings come to God's people through what seem to be simply ordinary providences, 
or even through strength of numbers and not through miraculous intervention. And yet those are no less Yahweh saving. You think of David after he captures Jerusalem. 2 Samuel chapter 8 describes David's sort of initial military campaigns against the Philistines and the Edomites and the Moabites and the Syrians and the Amalekites. David, in those situations, was not fighting with a little army of 600 men that had poorly equipped weapons. He seems in those texts to have had a military that was proportionate to the task ahead of him. And yet over and over in the text it says, the Lord gave him victory. The Lord gave him victory. And that's very encouraging for us to realize especially when we do not live in a period of redemptive history where there's this ongoing special revelation and these miraculous interventions in history. God is still saving and protecting His people by many through the course of ordinary providences. And that is a crucial element of what saving faith causes a person to affirm. An absolute conviction that nothing prohibits our merciful God from saving by the means that He sees fit and brethren, that does not get bored with watching God work through His ordinary operations. That's the second thing to see about His expression of saving faith. The final thing that we see here is that God, sorry, Jonathan trusts God for physical salvation. That may seem like an obvious observation in this context, but I think it's important. We already said that Jonathan here is not expressing his initial saving faith in Yahweh, like at his conversion. Nor is he expressing the belief that Yahweh will save his soul from damnation. When we throw out the term save, very often we immediately transport it into the context of soul salvation. And that is our preeminent need as sinners. But that's not what Jonathan is talking about when he says that God can save by many or by few. He is speaking of physical salvation from a temporal threat to his earthly life. Now, was Jonathan aware of the realities of sin and death and hell and his need for salvation from those things. Of course he was. But that's not in the immediate context of what he's being threatened in. His life is in danger. And so we see that it is his saving faith that expresses confidence for God in all of life. Not just the spiritual transactions in the courtroom of heaven. Saving faith logically invests itself in God's ability to save first and foremost in that eternal context, but it doesn't stop there. It flows out and then begins to appropriate God for every facet of life. Like Job, Jonathan did have confidence that his Redeemer lived to make intercession for him then, and that after his death he would stand in his flesh and he would see God. But he doesn't leave saving faith behind him when he is not considering his eternal redemption. He lives by his faith. It's just like Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. In other words, Jesus says, start there. Start with the kingdom of God. Start with investing your saving faith in confidence in what God can do in the eternal courtroom. But then all these things will be added unto you. Christ doesn't, in other words, he's not saying, you don't just live by faith with respect to the kingdom of God and then don't concern yourself with the other things of life. He says, once your faith has been secured there, then you have a basis upon which to approach all of life, knowing that God saves by many or by few from death, from hell, and in the everyday affairs of your life. And that is what we see in Jonathan's expression of saving faith. He trusts God regardless of what he's decreed. He knows that God is able to work in any and all means and circumstances, and he lives by this faith in every aspect of his life, physical and spiritual. So then, we come to the third point, the justification of saving 
faith. Having heard Jonathan's expression of saving faith, the next verses are going to show us evidences that vindicate the expression as genuine. Here we're going to see the internal dispositions of his heart begin to manifest themselves in tangible and external ways. And I want you to look at these specific evidences in Jonathan's life as windows into some of the things that characterize a living faith and then use them as means to examine your own faith. There are four evidences in this text. We are going to conclude today's sermon by looking at the first two. And the next time we'll examine the final two and we're going to develop a little bit more this idea of the justification of saving faith. So then, the first evidence that vindicates his expression as genuine is found in verse 7, and it is this, the incorrigibility of saving faith. In verse 7 we read, Jonathan, his armor bearer, said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Notice what happens here. Jonathan is facing a seemingly impossible task, and he has expressed confidence in God's ability to deliver them. And so on the surface, we might be tempted to say, well, Jonathan clearly has no doubts whatsoever. He has perfect confidence, and he's ready to go and fight the Philistines without any hesitation. And while it's true that the confidence he expressed is real and is genuine, we also know from the rest of Scripture that the possession of saving faith does not mean that the presence of the old man is completely eradicated from saints in this life. And so therefore, even in our moments of strongest confidence in God, we can very often experience a subtle doubt that lurks below the surface, even if no one else sees it. As the Apostle Paul said, when I would do good, you may not see it, but I find that evil lies close at hand. And as the man whose son had a demon confessed to Christ, Lord, I, I believe, I believe, but help my unbelief. We experience that as Christians, and Jonathan was no different. The text wants us to see that even in the midst of his confidence, Jonathan still had room and need for encouragement. Now, verse 7 doesn't have to be there. You could delete it, and the story would literally continue right along without missing a beat. In verse 6, Jonathan says the Lord's going to work for them. And then in verse 8, he begins to outline the plan of how they're going to go about this. But in between that, the Holy Spirit saw fit to record for us the words of the servant, whereby he sought to encourage Jonathan. And I want you to notice that the servant has a twofold grounds of encouragement for Jonathan. First, he reinforces Jonathan's heart toward God. Jonathan had expressed confidence that God was sufficient in and of himself to accomplish the task. And it was upon that basis that Jonathan would act. And the servant comes along and says, Yes, do what is in your heart. That inclination in your heart to trust God, that is right. That is good. And it's proper for you to respond like that in this situation. If there were any lingering doubts in Jonathan's heart about the sufficiency of God, the servant attacks those by saying, no, you need to act upon that instinct. That thing in you that wants to put confidence in God, you act upon that, that you will give yourself wholly to God, and that is good and that is right. Go with that and do not shrink back from the deceitfulness of sin. So he reinforces his confidence in the sufficiency of God. The second grounds of his encouragement is found within what we often call koinonia, or fellowship. In other words, the servant doesn't just say, you've got the right idea, you should trust God, that's a good instinct, but good luck and I'll be down here cheering you on. 
No, he says, not only is your instinct to trust God good and right, but brother, I am with you in this, so much so that, so that my very heart and soul are wedded to you in this endeavor of faith. Now, we don't have a detailed description of the servant and his history or assurances that he was a, uh, a faithful worshiper of Yahweh. But really, I think what we have here in this text is about all the evidence that we need. Jonathan has just said that he's going on what basically, from a human perspective, is a suicidal mission. And the only grounds of hope that Jonathan has is that God will deliver him. And so if you're the servant boy, the only grounds upon which you would have any hope or confidence in this uh, proposed task is if your soul also ultimately finds its rest and confidence in God. Notice he says, I am with you, Jonathan. But that does not mean that his confidence is in Jonathan. The servant has no reason to believe that Jonathan is capable by himself of fighting all these Philistines. None whatsoever. The only way this is going to work is if God gives the victory. So by definition, if the servant is going to go along with this and is going to encourage Jonathan in this, the only way he could do that with confidence is if his ultimate hope was in God as well. So therefore, brethren, what we have here is one saint encouraging another saint that they are with them in their walk before the Lord. The servant says, you are not alone. My very heart is bound up in the outcome of your walk with God. He's invested in Jonathan's dealings with God and he is willing to die on that account. That's the nature and power of men and women who have mutual fellowship in Yahweh of hosts. It is the highest common bond that can exist between two people, that the very life of God dwells in them both and that each of their walks before Him are bound up in one another's. God has designed it this way, that the heart that has been born of the Spirit of God recognizes that same principle at work in another and draws encouragement from them. That is an evidence of saving faith. It is easily able to be encouraged by the uh, observation of that same spirit dwelling in another. You know one of the first ways that we can tell that someone is not a Christian when they enter this assembly from the outside? We just talked to him for a few minutes about the majesty of Christ and the work of the Spirit that we have experienced in our own lives. And you could tell within about th two, three, four, five minutes whether their heart is also inflamed with encouragement because it identifies with what we're talking about and is overjoyed to find someone else who has experienced the exact same thing. If their heart is not able to be encouraged by the mutual experience and identity of another Christian, it's almost always because there is no saving faith to be found there. And we have a wonderful example of that right here. The servant identifies with Jonathan's expression of faith in God Almighty and says, Yes, brother, and we will walk before the Lord together in this endeavor. And it's in response to that encouragement from a fellow saint that Jonathan then proceeds to act. His faith springs into action because of encouragement. That's one of the signs of a living and vibrant faith. It is encourageable. Second evidence of his saving faith is uh, seen starting in verse 8. And it is what I'm calling the sensitivity of saving faith. Verse 8, Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and show, uh, we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, 
for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. Now, when I say sensitivity, the sensitivity of saving faith, I'm not referring to what we normally mean when we say that someone is a sensitive person, right? That their emotions are, are easily moved and, and provoked. What I mean by sensitivity is a sensitivity to the specific operations of the Holy Spirit. Now, it may not be immediately obvious how these verses reveal that, so let me explain. Jonathan devises a plan for discerning whether he ought to go up and attack the Philistines in their camp or whether he ought to wait down below. He and his servant are going to reveal themselves to the Philistines at the bottom of the rocky crag. And if the Philistines respond one way, then he and his servant are going to stay where they are. But if the Philistines call them up, then they will launch an attack. Now, Jonathan seems to be confident that he can just set up these two options and that God will use the outcome to give him special revelation about what he's supposed to do. And so very often we'll read a story like this and we'll go, how can you do that? How can you just put two options before God and tell them that he's got to reveal what you should do based on the outcome that he decrees? Is this something that we can do perhaps? It sure would make decision making a lot easier, wouldn't it? Lord, I've got two women I'm considering courting. If I flip heads, I'm going with this one. If I flip tails, I'm going with the other one. That would make life very simple. But here's the thing. There's actually a biblical theology behind this putting God to the test type thing in the Old Testament. And what you realize is that what we're, what we're watching here represents a special work of the Holy Spirit of God on certain men in redemptive history. And it's not God's normative way of operating. For example... Think about Abraham's servant uh, in Genesis 24. Abraham sends the servant to go and find a wife for his son Isaac. And the servant prays to God and says, let the woman who comes out to draw water at this well and says to me, please let your jar down that I may drink, be the woman whom you have chosen. So in other words, the Abraham's servant sets up what we call, call a test for God, just like Jonathan but if you read that text carefully in Genesis, you'll notice that just before the servant's journey, Abraham told him that, both the, angel, that the angel of Yahweh would go with him to find a wife for Isaac. So the servant was accompanied on this journey by the Spirit and the Word of God in a unique redemptive historical setting. And it was the Word and the Spirit that prompted this idea in the servant's heart through a special act of providence. Same thing happens with Gideon in Judges chapter 6. He proposes this test for God where he's going to lay out a fleece. You remember this story? He's going to lay out a fleece on the ground overnight. And if God makes the fleece wet, then Gideon's going to know that God will give him victory over the Midianites. But what most people don't remember from that text is that like two verses before Gideon does this test, it says that the Spirit came upon him. In other words, it was the Spirit who prompted him to set up this test in order to accomplish a special act of redemption for God's people, just as the Spirit prompted Abraham's servant to do so. The point is this, that in all those cases, the Spirit is the one who initiates this. Even the men that we just read about, Abraham's servant, uh, uh, Gideon, or, or in this case, uh, Jonathan, they didn't just get to set up these tests for God any time that they wanted to throughout the day. The point is the Spirit had to prompt them. Otherwise, they could have no assurance that God would honor the test. And that's what we're dealing with here in Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan does not do this on a regular basis, but what this shows us is that the faith that he is exercising recognizes the divine promptings of the Spirit of God and responds accordingly. His faith, in other words, is sensitive 
to the operations of the Spirit. Now, we would not point to this as an example, a prescriptive model for how our saving faith will respond with sensitivity to the Spirit's work because uh, the Spirit is working in a unique context here. But just like we can go through the book of 1 Corinthians and, and we can see some of the unique things that were happening there at that point in redemptive history, like healing and speaking in tongues and predictive prophecy. And we can recognize on the one hand that those things aren't for the Christian today, and yet we can still exegete the text and pull out a general principle that is applicable. We can do the same thing here. Because whether it is a sensitivity to the miraculous, non-normative operations of the Spirit like this one, or it's a sensitivity to the regular operations of the Spirit, the point is that saving faith is conditioned to the work of God, the Holy Spirit. We are sensitive to Him, brethren. Like, like a, a wound that has been freshly opened and has been touched with vinegar. There's a, there's a reactive sensitivity on the part of a living faith to the one who has produced that faith within us. This same Jonathan is going to be distraught and he's going to be cut to his core when he sees David, the man whom God the Holy Spirit will anoint as king, being hunted like a dog by his demonic father. Jonathan's heart is sensitive to the work of the Spirit that was going on concerning David. Why? Because it's the same Spirit that produced his saving faith in him that causes him to be able to recognize what the Spirit is doing around him. And that is the same with us. We are sensitive to the pleadings of the Spirit through the Word of God. Our living faith, for example, recognizes. It, it can tell. It's sensitive to when it is near or distant from God. It's sensitive to when God the Spirit brings conviction of sin. Saving faith responds reflexively to the promptings of the Spirit. It recognizes the work of the Spirit in others when it encounters that work. And it recognizes what the Spirit is doing to build the kingdom of God in the earth. Jonathan's spiritual sensitivity might be manifesting itself in very extraordinary circumstances, but it is that same principle that is universal in all circumstances. Saving faith responds to the Spirit. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to look at two other evidences of saving faith next time, and we're going to look at its opposite when we examine Saul's actions in this battle. As we draw to a close today, I want to conclude with just one application taken directly from the fruits of faith that we saw with Jonathan. Now, I've got to begin with a question. As a child of God, does your faith draw life, and strength, and respond with sensitivity from the encouragement of other Christians? What Jonathan has shown us today is that God the Holy Spirit uses the means of Christian encouragement to uh, fan-saving faith into active obedience. Jonathan received encouragement from the servant, and what was the result? Action. Doing what God the Holy Spirit was prompting him to do. And because God the Holy Spirit uses encouragement to act upon saving faith, then you can test the nature of your faith by examining its encourageability. Now, it's here that we need to make a distinction in order to rightly discern our hearts. Because there is such a thing as encourageability that is not the result of saving faith. Encouragement, in its bare sense, does exist outside of this Christian kingdom. Sinful men frequently experience something that they will call encouragement. And very often what they mean by this is they were struggling to motivate themselves to do something, 
and someone gave them something or said something to them that allowed them to summon up that internal willpower to go out and do the thing. Consider the 9-11 hijackers. They were taxed with killing themselves and many others by driving planes into buildings. On the surface, there was a natural barrier to their actually carrying out that task, death. They would have to face death in order to do it. Men don't naturally enjoy death. And so what they needed was something to encourage them to move beyond the obstacle of death and to do the thing anyway. And so what did they receive as encouragement? The promise that if you do this, you will receive in the afterlife riches and promiscuity. And it worked. The encouragement got them to act. We think about uh, the popular phenomenon of motivational speakers. You bring a bunch of people who are struggling to find purpose in life into a room and, and someone encourages them with vague platitudes that their dreams are right around the corner if they just keep pushing through. And people always walk away from those things feeling encouraged. But what they mean is that they got a psychological boost to go out and pursue some kind of self-oriented goals or desires. That's not what we mean when we talk about the encourageability of saving faith. Now, what distinguishes Christian encouragement from worldly encouragement? Well, it's twofold. First, the grounding and orientation of encouragement is totally different for a Christian. For the Christian, encouragement is grounded in the worthiness of the God of the universe on his own terms and not upon the desires that terminate in the self. Worldly encouragement always finds its value in that it helps the one being encouraged to obtain what he or she wants. It does not find value in the worthiness of God, regardless of what the Christian may have to suffer to be faithful. Our encouragement does not. Second, Christian encouragement differs from worldly encouragement in its duration. You ever notice how uh, people who live off these motivational speakers are, are always on this roller coaster of ups and downs? It never lasts. It's like a person on drugs. They always have to come back for the next high because the thing they are feeding on does not sustain them. But not so Christian encouragement because Christian encouragement is worded, rooted in the work of God the Spirit to progressively conform us more and more into the image of Christ. And so therefore, the encouragement that Christians receive is more analogous to a brick wall. That every time we receive encouragement, it's like another brick is laid in that wall and the wall doesn't crumble after a few hours of the encouragement being laid. Over time, it grows and it gets wider and taller and more expansive. In other words, it keeps building up. You're going to be able to look back at a Christian whose faith is living off godly encouragement and see lasting objective growth that sustains itself. You won't see this fickleness that characterizes the emotions of the men of the world. That's one of the hallmarks of saving faith. It's reflexive and living and responds to the stimulants of the Holy Spirit that he uses to grow a saint. So then, does your faith respond like that to encouragement? This is the dividing line, really, between false converts and true saints. There were a lot of people in the Scriptures who received encouragement from godly saints, but who did not respond with action because there was no saving faith in the soul into which the encouragement could lodge itself. Think about the wilderness generation. God held forth the glorious promise of their receiving the land. And after Caleb and Joshua had seen the land with their own eyes, they returned to offer encouragement to the people, didn't they? They said, 
We've received, we've seen the land and it's exactly as God said it would be. It's flowing with milk and honey. Look to God, brethren, trust in the Lord. He has led us thus far. And if he said that he would give us the land, then we can be confident that he is sufficient to accomplish his word. Encouragement went forth from their lips, but it did not take hold in the hearts because there was no faith. Now, I bet, this would be fascinating to see, but I bet if you had been able to take, uh, just to pick an example, one of those NFL players, you know, before those football games, they'll all huddle up and start yelling at each other to get themselves hyped up and encouraged for the game. I bet if you took one of those NFL players, you transported him back in time to the wilderness generation, and you had him huddle up all the Israelites together, and he started screaming and yelling in their faces that they could do it if they just believed in themselves and, and were ready to, to strive a little bit harder. I bet we would have had a slightly different outcome there. Why? Because then the encouragement would have been rooted in those people themselves rather than having to look outside of God and let their encouragement rest there. When the motivation is rooted in the, in, uh, in the self, the men of the world love that. And they can get going for a period of time off of that. But you offer them encouragement that forces them to look outside of themselves for ultimate hope and satisfaction. No, they have no interest in that. And so, brethren, this is something that proves your faith to be genuine. That's a blessing. The fact that God gives evidences to the Christian of the sincerity of what he is doing in us is a blessing. And therefore, the application is very simple. Take encouragement from your fellow Christians. Take encouragement from your fellow Christians. When someone is trying to encourage you in Christ, go take that encouragement. Don't just sit passively and wait for your emotions to respond because very often that's what, we'll, that's what we'll do. When someone tries to encourage us, we think that the only way that it really is encouraging is if we experience some sort of involuntary emotional response that boils up within us. And if we don't experience that automatically, we include, well, I guess it wasn't really that encouraging after all. No, brethren, you go and take encouragement. As spouses, we don't, we don't take this approach, I trust, with one another. We don't say... Well, I didn't feel any involuntary emotional response to my spouse when I saw them today, so I guess I don't love them anymore. Now, you are commanded to go love them and to receive the love when they get it. The same is true with encouragement. It is a command. Be encouraged. When Paul commands uh, Christians to encourage one another, implicit in the command to encourage is the command for those being encouraged to receive it and to take hold of it. When Paul commands Christians to love, do you really think he had in mind the idea, well, I'm giving a command to Christians to love. You go love those outside of you in the congregation. But it really doesn't matter whether the people on the other end receive it. I'm just offering the command that it needs to be given. That would be absurd. The command is twofold. Just like we say the Ten Commandments, they're, they're, they're either listed in a positive or a negative fashion, but the opposite is implied. The same is true with encouragement. We are commanded to encourage one another, but that doesn't mean that you get to sit passively by when someone is trying to encourage you and just hope that it takes, so to speak. You are commanded to take that encouragement for yourself. Emotions may accompany encouragement and praise God when they do, but emotions are not the definition of encouragement. Now, how do you take encouragement regardless of an emotional response? Very simple through acting on the encouragement. When someone tries to encourage you to prayer or to remain steadfast in the midst of a trial or to put away sin or to help a brother in need, respond with 
action. That's what the Spirit of God does in the heart of a Christian. It spurs him to faithfulness, to actual uh, actions through encouragement. So do that. Take encouragement, act upon it, and then after you've acted upon it, go back and let the person who encouraged you know that their words were used by the Spirit of God as an impetus to your obedience. You know what that's going to do? It's going to encourage them. It's a full cycle of encouragement. It's what we do for one another, brothers and sisters. And as we do so, it's going to create a congregational environment in which faith in the hearts of every person is being continuously vindicated and strengthened for all to see. And that will have the fruit of producing greater assurance in everyone. As we give and take encouragement, act upon it, and then we get to see the visible fruits of the encouragement in those around us, not only is our individual faith going to be strengthened as we see that, yes, my heart does respond reflexively to Christian encouragement, but we're going to be able to look outside of ourselves and see the same thing happening in other brothers, and that's going to build up our assurance in, our, in what God is doing in us and in one another, and we're going to have a much greater confidence in the Lord collectively as a congregation. So I close with this. Consider your incarnate Lord. He was a man who drew encouragement from saints around him. At the Last Supper, when the Lord was confronted with the reality of the wrath of God, there could have been many things to occupy his mind in that moment and many ways to spend his last moments before death, but he comes and he gathers his disciples around him and says, Brethren, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Why was that? Because in doing so, he was drawing encouragement from their presence. Our Lord Jesus was not above Christian encouragement. He lived off of it. He could have gone his whole life without surrounding himself with saints or disciples and then could have ascended into heaven and and poured out his spirit upon certain people and, and we could have had the apostles functionally without them having lived through the life of Jesus, hypothetically. But part of the reason why Christ didn't do that, there are many reasons, but one of them is because as a man on the earth, he drew encouragement and he wanted encouragement from those around him. And so take that as a motivation. Encouragement is a wonderful thing. Your Lord Jesus lived off of it in the days of his humiliation. Encourage and be encouraged. It's an evidence of saving faith. Let's pray.